0: the people in their synagogue and they were amazed where did this man get his this wisdom and these miraculous powers they asked isn't this the carpenter's son isn't his mother's name mary and aren't his brothers james joseph simon and judas aren't all his sisters with us and where did this man get all these things and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod, the tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The King was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus.
1: Well, thank you very much, Paul, and uh, good morning, everybody. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help as we begin. Heavenly Father, Jesus taught us that whoever has understanding of the kingdom will be given more and will have an abundance while whoever rejects your word, even what they have will be taken away. And so we thank you that you've spoken from your heavenly throne, that we might know you in your glory and goodness. We thank you for this opportunity to hear your word with the Bible in our own language, with undisturbed time on our hands, with open ears and hearts. We pray that our gratitude for these gifts might be demonstrated By our attention to your word and that you might be pleased to show us jesus so that we might believe in his name we pray amen well i wonder if i can uh, start like this the covid vaccine is a crime against humanity yes no marmite is delicious yes no Ambulance workers are right to go on strike. Legalizing cannabis will help cut crime. We should all eat more meat to support our farmers. Fracking is the way out of our energy crisis. Brexit was a mistake. Bring back capital punishment. All cats are evil. (laughs) Harry and Meghan are a model of humility and servant-hearted loyalty. Pineapple should never be put on a pizza. The toilet paper should always hang over, not under the roll. Discuss. (laughs) Well, I begin like that to remind us that there are many subjects that can divide people in our world. Many, many topics that can create strong feelings. And I could already hear some of those strong feelings coming out and powerful arguments that will split people into opposing sides. Try a few of them over coffee if you run out of things to talk about and you'll see how controversial those subjects are. But I reckon it'd be hard to find any topic or any person more controversial and more divisive than Jesus Christ. Just try mentioning a few of Jesus' claims at work tomorrow morning and see how it goes. He's the only way to God. All other religions are nothing compared to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only sinless man ever to have lived. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. He holds the universe in his hands. Now, I say try it. I know many of us do regularly speak up for Jesus in school, at work, in the wider family, among friends and neighbors. And you know how divisive his name is, how controversial he is. And you have some emotional scars, probably, and painful memories to show for it. In fact, if we're alert to what is going on in our society, you'll know that there is a a battle regarding Jesus Christ going on right now, isn't there? There is a, a widespread suggestion in our culture that we would be better off as a society without religion in general and without Christianity in particular. There is an argument that's been growing in the Western culture of the last 50 years that the teaching of Jesus is destructive to human flourishing. It's damaging the very things our society holds most dear. For example, author and social commentator Oz Guinness says Western culture has entered what he calls an ABC phrase, phase. Anything but Christianity. If we could get rid of Christianity, get rid of Jesus and his influence once and for all, we'd all be better off. Well, this is something Jesus himself predicted. Back in Matthew 10, he tells his disciples in verse 34 Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the very members of his own household. Jesus knew he'd come to bring division. He knew he was going to be the most controversial topic in our world. Well, as we turn back this morning and for the next 10 weeks to Matthew's account of the life and teaching of Jesus, we're going to see why. We're going to see the origins of this conflict, We're going to see the beginning of that desire to be rid of Jesus. We're going to see the origin of the hostility towards Jesus and his followers. And therefore, we're going to see that this is not something new or unique to our time and place. In the chapters we're going to be studying together this term from the end of chapter 13 to the end of 17, two things are happening simultaneously. On the one hand, the claims and significance of Jesus are becoming clearer and clearer. Matthew is showing us with inescapable clarity who Jesus really is. That he is God's appointed, heaven-sent, spirit-filled king, come to announce the last days, come to bring in God's kingdom, come to bring judgment to rule God's world. He is the last Adam, the son of David, the new Israel, the long-awaited saviour and judge, the one true son of God. He is the almighty, all-powerful God in the flesh. As we sung before, Emmanuel, God with us, and every knee must bow to him. It's a big claim. And as we go through, starting next week with the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, we're going to see this claim become increasingly clear and incontrovertible. But alongside that clarity, something else is happening. The the second track of these chapters, we must understand. And that is the opposition to Jesus is also intensifying. And these two things are happening in train, together. The more clear Matthew becomes, the more clear Jesus' identity is, the more intense the opposition. And so we're entering a phase of the gospel of increasing polarization in the reactions to Jesus recognition and rejection and what that means for us is this it means that whether you are a convinced christian this morning already or someone looking into it you need to know that to follow jesus and to speak for jesus will come at a cost Clarity will require courage. If you believe Jesus is who Matthew says he is, and you're prepared to speak out for him in this world, you're going to need the courage to do so, because it will put you right into the conflict. It will divide you from others, even more dramatically than any of those topics I mentioned earlier. And the question is, are you up for it? Will you follow Jesus and speak for him whatever the cost? Will we risk the world's hostility and be prepared to lose everything? Because if Os Guinness is right and our culture has entered a phase of anything but Christianity then what we need what i think god is calling for is a generation of christians who are clearer than ever on who jesus is and what it means to follow him will you be part of that generation that is the question before us this morning well you'll see on the sheet and hopefully you've got matthew open there at chapter 13 that we're going to look at these two episodes under the two headings fascinated rejection and fearful destruction, fascinated rejection first of all. This is a nice little story of Jesus returning to his hometown because it gives us some rare details of Jesus' personal life. It's here that we learn his father's trade, uh, the trade of carpenter, the trade that Jesus himself pursued. It's here that we learn he is part of quite a large family with four brothers and several sisters. So in these verses, we get a tantalizing glimpse into Jesus' private life, his socioeconomic circumstances, his family, the neighbors and friends among whom he was brought up. But these details are simply the backdrop for a much bigger point that Matthew wants to make. Notice that verse 53 marks a change of scene when jesus had finished these parables he moved on from there now that kind of sentence when you're reading your bible can just pass you by but it's actually very important to notice that this is a a kind of an indicator that matthew gives us that he's he's changing scene he's moving in fact from one of his units of teaching into one of his units of action There are five times in the book that Matthew uses a phrase or similar to that. And he has built his book around these five teaching episodes, the middle one of which was chapter 13, which we looked at in September. So here in verse 53, we're moving from a major teaching block into a major action block, which will take us all the way to chapter 17. That doesn't mean that Jesus is not doing any teaching, but the focus is not on the teaching. And the significance of this is that this little episode, 53 to 58, is not simply an interesting story to fill a gap. It is, in fact, a dramatic, thematic introduction to chapters 14 to 17, which we will understand if we keep in mind the teaching of chapter 13. Hope that makes sense. This little unit, it's introducing 14 to 17, but it's coming right on the back of The teaching of chapter 13 and therefore we are alert to the topic of listening to and rejecting Jesus well listening to Jesus first of all chapter uh, verse 54 coming to his hometown he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed you may remember up until this point that in chapter 13, Jesus has been teaching a large crowd of people from a boat on the shore of Lake Galilee. And when we looked at this way back in September, if you were here, we said this was like a kind of a makeshift synagogue. Well, now he moves a short distance away to his hometown, a place of his upbringing, literally his fatherland is the word Matthew uses. And in his hometown, which elsewhere we learn is called Nazareth, he preaches in their synagogue. Interestingly, this is the last time that the word synagogue is going to be used in Matthew Now Matthew doesn't tell us the content of that preaching We can imagine the content from what we've already seen instead. He tells us the reaction Which verse 54 is amazement? amazement now if people were amazed at my teaching I'd be encouraged if you're a Sunday school teacher a growth group leader if people went away amazed at your teaching I think you'd be pretty pleased. But what are we meant to make of this amazement? Well, actually, the word amazement signals the strongest possible reaction that you can have. In other contexts, this word is used to describe people struck by sudden shock and panic. Maybe the word astounded would be better. They are astounded at what is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And they're astounded, of course, at the miracles they've heard about. Well, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, many people are amazed at Jesus' ministry and his teaching. But notice that as well as amazement, these people have a bit of a problem. Verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? This sudden explosion of questions reveals the struggle that they were having. Can you see it? The problem is they know him already. See, think about it. These people are Jews. They have a particular set of beliefs about God which have been revealed to them through the prophets of the Old Testament. They believed in Yahweh, the creator God of the universe who reveals himself through Moses and Abraham and so on. The holy, mighty, transcendent, awesome God. Powerful, invisible, filling the universe with his glorious presence. They knew God. They had read their Bibles He was that kind of God. And they'd seen Jesus grow up as a child among them. They knew that he lived there with his parents, Mary and Joseph, and their other children. No doubt they'd seen Jesus as a youth learning his father's trade. Maybe some of them had employed him to mend their plows or fix their roofs. Perhaps they had bandaged his hand when he hit it with a nail they'd seen him bleed seen the red blood just like theirs you see those uh, apocryphal gospels the ones that didn't make it into the bible have all sorts of fancy stories about jesus when he was a child growing up in nazareth there was one where he made a load of birds out of clay and the the birds all took off there's another story About Jesus being dazzlingly brilliant at school top of the class in algebra or whatever it was there's a great one about him being bullied by a boy and he curses him and the boy drops dead fantastic wouldn't it be have those kind of powers as a schoolboy but those stories are nonsense those Gospels rightly didn't make it into the Bible because Jesus was ordinary growing up in Nazareth he was one of them an ordinary man from an ordinary family in the very ordinary town of Nazareth. And so can you see their problem of putting those two things together? What they knew about the God of the Old Testament, invisible, awesome, transcendent, powerful, and what they knew about this man, the carpenter's son, how could they possibly Relate those two ideas together. That was their problem. To believe in Jesus was to have to rethink everything, to rethink their entire view of God, to understand that as well as a God like this, he is a God like this imminent as well as transcendent, personal as well as powerful, vulnerable as well as mighty. It was a problem to get your head around. And so they don't get their head around it. They reject him. Verse 57, and they took offense at him. Now the Greek word translated took offense there is an important one in Matthew. It appeared back in chapter 13, verse 21, and it was translated there as fall away. It's going to appear again in the very last week of our series, translated offend, offend. The Greek word is the word scandalizo, to be scandalized by something. And it contains an idea of being offended, of having your toes trodden on, of your prejudices thoroughly shaken. But there's more to it than that. It also contains the idea of stumbling, of falling away to one's own destruction. And so this word is an important one. It's the opposite of faith. It's a rejection that leads to destruction. And here's the thing. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, Jesus is the cause of the offense. He is the problem. He is the cause of the stumbling. He is the controversy, you see. So when Matthew says they took offense at him, scandalizo, he is saying more than they were just a bit grumpy about him. You know, the Australians have this tall poppy syndrome. You know, the the person who comes back from the village and he's gone and made it. Yeah, well, we know what he was like when he was running around in shorts. It's more than that. He is saying they've made a solemn and serious and possibly irreversible decision, a decision that will destroy them in the end because they've rejected their God who has come among them. Their preconceived ideas of God are so fixed that actually it's not God they believe in at all. And they cannot accommodate their view to this new revelation that God chooses to make. Well, how do you think Jesus responds? How would you respond? You might expect him to try and persuade them. Maybe to turn a few clay birds into real birds and do some extra spectacular miracle guys come on you've got to but but he doesn't do that look at what he does verse 57 jesus says to them only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith it seems that jesus is not surprised by any of this and far from trying to persuade them, he reinforces their decision by deliberately doing fewer miracles. Why does he respond like this? We'll look back to chapter 13, verse 13, which we've got to have ringing in our ears in this section. 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand... In the most fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding, you'll be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. See, the reason he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith was not because he needed their faith to do miracles. But to do miracles would have given them more revelation, which they didn't deserve because they had already made up their minds about Him. In fact, Nazareth here, the Fatherland, is a test case for Israel as a whole. The people of Israel have been given all the miracles and all the information they need to believe. But Jesus doesn't fit into their pre-existing worldview. They are seeing, but not understanding. And so this is the last time he preaches in a synagogue in Matthew. From now on, he will go out into the villages and the towns, and he'll go to the Gentiles. Because Israel are seeing, but not understanding. They've had revelation, and they've rejected it. Well, before we turn to the next section, let me throw out a couple of implications for us this morning. Firstly, I think this teaches us, doesn't it, that people who reject Jesus do not reject him on the basis of the lack of evidence or in the failure of his credibility, but in the face of evidence and in the face of his credibility. Do you see that? See, if you're someone here this morning who is yet to make up their mind about Jesus, I wonder if you've ever found yourself thinking like this. I can't believe, on the basis of the testimony of my Christian friends or on the Bible, because I'm a rational person, I'm a scientific person, I'm not cynical, I'm not skeptical but I do want to see things with my own eyes. I need solid evidence. I need empirical data. That's the kind of person I am. And so, of course, if I'd been there, if I'd seen Jesus in the flesh, if I could have heard him speak and see him perform those miracles, or even see him raised from the dead, of course I would believe. Of course I would. Ever found yourself thinking like that? To which Matthew would say, no, you wouldn't. Not if you're already predisposed not to. It doesn't matter what evidence you have. You wouldn't be any different from these people who had Jesus right there with him in their own town, in their synagogue, right in front of them. They could not have had more evidence. They knew enough to be amazed and fascinated Notice their questions, verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and power? Verse 56, where then did he get all these things? The only answer that is logical is from God. But they refuse to reach that conclusion, even though it's staring them in the face, they would prefer to leave the question hanging. So can I say to you, if you're wavering about Jesus because you feel there is a lack of evidence, or because you suspect that becoming a Christian involves some huge leap into the dark and you just don't have that kind of a a heart, can I gently encourage you this morning to take heart, to take courage, to realize that becoming a Christian is the wisest, most logical, most rational decision anyone can make because God has been lavishly generous with his revelation hasn't he think about the world that we live in he's given us creation look into a telescope look into a microscope you'll see the evidence of God everywhere you look he's given us a conscience that's a sign of God that we made in his image that we know right from wrong he's placed Christians and churches on every street corner, in every town. He's given us death, which reminds us of the reality of his judgment. He sent Christ into the world, swinging the calendar from B.C. to A.D. The academics all try and change it, don't they? C.E., common era. Well, when did the common era start? It started when Jesus came. Can't get rid of that one. And most of all, He's captured it all in black and white in the book that is right in front of you. We have every reason to believe. And no one will be able to stand before the throne of God on the last day and say, I didn't know enough. So if you're wavering, if you're doubting, if you're wondering, have courage, take heart, put your trust in Jesus you have every reason to do so. No one in the history of the world has ever regretted that decision. But the second implication for us is this: having put our trust in Jesus, we must now keep listening to him or we will lose what understanding we have. Remember the warning from three twelve thirteen twelve Is being reenacted here 13 12 whoever has will be given more revelation and he will have an abundance whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and that's what's going on in Nazareth Jesus leaves them in the dark and this is a very sober warning for Christians not to take for granted not to despise the means God gives us to continue to believe to the end nor to allow familiarity with them to turn to contempt as Jesus, people of Nazareth, as the people of Jesus' hometown did see so I think we can easily fall into this trap can't we as Bible believing Christians we think the preaching of the word in church the Bible study in the growth group the real food group the one-to-one appointment with that friend that's in the diary the daily Bible reading plan the family Bible time we think those things will always be available to us we assume that God will always be available to us and so when life gets hard we think we can skip these things with no harm we all know that we've all been there Life gets busy, sickness or some other challenge comes, and we think the solution is to cut back on these things. So we skip a morning at church and give ourselves a bit more sleep. We skip the small group and give ourselves a bit more time. We cancel the one-to-one in order to finish that essay, which, in all honesty, could have been finished before if we'd been more organized and disciplined. Students, I'm looking at you. And we think it doesn't matter that these things will be there next time. But we forget that we are slowly becoming the third soil in the parable where the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth slowly, slowly choke the word until what understanding we once had is gone and we find ourselves in hard-hearted unbelief scandalized, fallen away. The lesson, therefore, is very simple. Christian, if you want to make it to the end, keep listening to the word. No matter what, keep coming to church, keep putting yourself under the sound of the gospel as if your life depended on it, because your life does depend on it. And those of you with friends and family members in whom you can see this process at work then your responsibility clearly as far as it humanly depends on you is to make sure they are hearing the word as well that's how you can love them so there are two implications from this section but here's a question how do I know if I've understood How do I know that I'm not just fascinated and amazed by Jesus? How do I know that I've actually got that understanding? So I'm not just hearing without perceiving, seeing without understanding. Well, the answer is a little bit of a surprise. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not a cognitive thing. It's a heart thing. Listen to this. The answer is... If you really understand Jesus in your heart, if you've seen him, if you've grasped him, you won't be scandalized when you see him hanging on a cross. That's the answer. You won't be scandalized. You won't fall away, offended, when you see the ultimate hostility of the world and you see Jesus at his most unimpressive when you see him hanging on the cross. That's what we're going to see in the next section. Fearful destruction, 14.1-12. Matthew follows his account of Jesus' rejection at Nazareth by telling us of another rejection, the brutal silencing of his precursor, John the Baptist, by Herod, something that has already taken place at this point in the narrative. Now, what prompts Jesus' report, given in the form of a flashback, is a report that Herod hears about Jesus and the conclusion he reaches. Verse 1... At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. Now, the Herod mentioned here is one of a rather complicated and extremely unpleasant family of rulers who ruled the various regions of the Jews under the governance of the Romans around the time of Jesus. It's almost impossible to get your head around this family, as we'll see. If you think our royal family is dysfunctional, get a load of the Herods. Now, the Herod here is not the King Herod mentioned in connection with Jesus' birth in Matthew 2. That was Herod the Great. This Herod is one of Herod the Great's sons who ruled the region of Galilee and the region of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So he's ruling the region where Jesus was busy and where John had been baptizing. Not surprisingly, therefore, he hears some reports about Jesus, and the impact he was having in his region. But what is surprising is the conclusion he reaches, verse 2. And he said to his descendants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Why would Herod reach that conclusion? Why would he muddle up Jesus and John? After all, John did not go around doing any of the miracles that Jesus did, The answer is, as we're about to find out, because of a guilty conscience and the memory of Herod's particularly brutal treatment of John some time ago. And so that's the story that Matthew now needs to fill in. You see, like many powerful men who have come and gone throughout history, Herod's sense of power rested on his ability to silence those who spoke out against him. And this is what had happened to John, verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. Now it's worth knowing a little bit about the extremely messy background to this situation. I suggest you don't take notes at this point. You just sit and listen. And I'll tell you the story. This lady Herodias was the, and also don't feel you have to take all this in. This lady Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, being the daughter of another son of Herod the Great, Aristobulus, who was married to her uncle Philip, who was the half brother of Herod Antipas, the Herod married here. Now it's my job to get my head around this during the week and I've had great fun doing so. Herod the Great was married ten times, so it does get a little bit complicated. But Herod Antipas was already married to a daughter of a neighboring Arabian king. That's the Herod here. Nevertheless, one day on a trip to Rome, he fell in love with Herodias, his brother's wife, and they got married, even though they were both already married, And she also happened to be his niece. If you think this family can't get any more dysfunctional, let me tell you, and this is purely just out of interest, Salome, the daughter of Herodias, who we'll meet in a moment, later married her ageing uncle Philip, another Philip, thus becoming both aunt and sister-in-law to her own mother. So don't get your head around it. The Netflix series is coming out soon. All will be explained. Now, as I say we don't need to know all this in detail but here is the point can you see why John had a problem with Herod that phrase verse 4 John had been saying to him suggests that John the prophet of God had been consistently and persistently calling Herod out for his relationship with Herodias it is a classic of the clash between the prophet and the king truth and power that you see all through the Bible and as people often do when they speak the Word of God to powerful people with a vested interest in keeping things as they are they put themselves in great danger now that danger has been averted for a while not because of Herod's respect for the Word of God but because of fear of the people But now comes the circumstances when things are going to conspire towards John's permanent silencing. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Well, what are we to learn from this horrible episode? And why does Matthew place it here? Well, I wonder if you can see the connection between this section and the previous one. See, who is more powerful here, John or Herod? Well, of course, Herod. If you had gone into any of the streets of galilee and asked him who is the most powerful person in this region after the emperor of course everyone would have said herod but notice what actually motivates herod is not power but fear he fears john who he thinks has risen from the dead he fears the jews who approve of john's preaching he fears herodias he fears breaking his foolish oath to the girl he fears looking weak in front of his guests Like so many powerful men before him and after him, it is fear and insecurity that drives him to silence the truth. That is what is happening for those countries we prayed for earlier, isn't it? China, Iraq, Nigeria. The Christians are being persecuted because of fear. And so those with power want to silence the truth. But I wonder if you can see what Herod has done to himself. Remember 13, 12. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. See, Herod was someone who had the word of God. In God's grace, in God's kindness, John spoke the word of truth to him so he could repent but what herod wanted was to silence the word of god and he did it by putting in prison but now fear has conspired to take away john and therefore the word of god for good never was there someone more brutally silenced than john but never was there someone for whom Jesus' words in Matthew 13 are more true than Herod Antipas. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. See, Herod has brought the judgment of blindness upon himself. It's one of the great ironies of those who persecute Christians. They think they are winning the battle, But what they are doing is blinding and deafening themselves to the word. Putting the word completely out of reach by killing the people who have been sent to bring it. It's another warning, isn't it? To guard the word. To treasure it. Never to take it for granted. Because it can be lost. But there's another reason Matthew has included this account here. It's to prepare those who will listen to Jesus... And will speak for Jesus for what is to come. It's to prepare us to suffer with Jesus. Look how Matthew closes his account, verse 12. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. This verse links John and his death to Jesus and his death. And it helps us to grasp the significance of this inf- incident. Just flick over, if you would, to chapter 17. We'll come to this in a few weeks' time. Chapter 17, verse 12. The context is a discussion about the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who Jesus identifies with John the Baptist, but notice how he identifies himself with both. Verse 12, chapter 17. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But I've done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. See, what we're being shown here is a preview of how this controversy will end. It's actually a controversy that has been building all through the Bible. The clash between the prophet and the king, between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man. And Jesus is saying that just as this clash ended in death for John, so it will for him, the Son of Man. The climax of the controversy is just a short time away from here. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he'll find himself standing, as John did, before powerful men. And those powerful men will lift him on a cross to silence him once and for all. And it's at this point that Matthew wants us to pay particular attention. Because it's at this point that he tells us, there on the cross, Jesus becomes the greatest scandal of all. So much so, using that same word, he tells us that even the disciples will be scandalized and fall away. And so Jesus will be left all alone, the only faithful Israelite in the world who keeps faith with God, a crucified Christ, then becomes a scandal for humanity. Not just a carpenter from Nazareth, but a carpenter from Nazareth suffering the most humiliating and weak death ever devised by man, a scandal, an offence, something that blows apart every preconception of God, the crucified Christ. And so this is the implication for us as we conclude. The scandal of Christ on a cross is the thing that must bring each of us this morning to a moment of decision. Remember, our culture, anything but Christianity, and God is calling for a new generation of Christians who are so clear that they all have the courage to speak for Christ. If you're at school, you know how hard that can be, how hard it is. It's like the mission field in Iraq or China or Nigeria. It's just as hard to speak for Christ at school, just as humiliating. You have to be just as courageous and at work. And in your wider family where they think you're stupid for being a Christian. God is calling us to have that courage. Because we're so clear that Jesus is who he says he is. And we're not scandalized by the cross. And so here is the question for us. Will you put your faith in Christ on the cross? Or will you at the last moment fall away? Will we bow in our hearts to him as king, trusting in his death for our forgiveness, his resurrection for life, valuing him and what he has done so highly that we will not be ashamed of the gospel, but will make the kingdom of Christ the great cause of our lives? Or will we merely be fascinated? Well, let's pray for God's help. I'm going to pray after just giving you a moment to reflect. And this would be a great prayer to pray, whether you are new to Christian things, whether you're looking into it, when you or whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, because the crucified Christ brings us to that moment of decision. Will we keep believing? Will we keep speaking? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your lavish generosity in revealing to us, revealing yourself to us in your word so that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him and so receive eternal life in him. Please forgive us for the times we have doubted please forgive us for the times we have taken these things for granted and even disdain them and thank you that you call each of us now to submit to jesus as lord and to partner with you in the vital glorious work of making him known no matter what the cost we pray that this great work would be our priority and our passion from this morning onwards in jesus name we pray Amen.